morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Today, I'm going to take you on a journey that will likely take us into territories somewhat unfamiliar to the average listener. We, were, we are going to explain, explore strange new worlds, seek out new civilizational thoughts, and will boldly go where but few men have probably gone before. We start the journey, though, in the story that we just read. Um, I had him read it earlier uh, because it would have been a big insert here. Uh, most all of you are familiar probably with that story of uh, the demoniac and all that. And actually, was, Dave spoke about it last week a little. Um, so we hear that as uh, Yeshua stepped out of the boat and stepped onto the shore, immediately a man with an unclean spirit comes up from the tombs to meet him. And then we are told... And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, because we are many. Now I'm going to move on at this point to examine a case study by the late Walter Martin who is discussing a phone call dealing with people who are dealing with the demon possession situation. Now, most of you probably know who Walter Martin is, but for those who may not, he was a Christian apologist who wrote numerous works throughout the 50s and 60s, um, one of his most famous works being uh, called The Kingdom of the Cults. It's been reprinted many times. That's probably his most noteworthy material. Um, he was also referred to as the Bible Answer Man. Um, so he, had, he was pretty popular in his day. He passed away in 1989, but in 2008, a new work was published based on material he had compiled for an accompanying volume to his Kingdom of the Cults, which was going to be called Kingdom of the Occult. He had hoped to finish that during his lifetime and have it published, but never got around to it before he passed away. So this case file comes from that work, and it discusses a call that he received, which was stating, We have been praying for this girl for four hours. We're simply exhausted. Please tell us what to do. Well, what has happened so far, Martin asked. Well, she is possessed by multiple devils. Do you get a count? They said, yes. We asked them in Jesus' name how many they were, and they told us 56. Martin said, well, that's, good. that's a good beginning. Did you get their names? Every one of them named themselves, screeching whenever we commanded them in the name of Christ. Good. Have you been exercising them one at a time? Yes, and quite a few of them are gone. What is the girl's background? She is involved in Satanism. We found the Satanic Bible in her bureau drawer. She has been on drugs for some time. We also found some symbols of Satanic worship. The story continues on about how they continued removing the demons one at a time, having the, story, having the most struggle with the final one, but ultimately removing it, releasing a girl from the bondage of drugs, and how she later dedicated her life to Christ and the ministry. Martin concludes the story by stating, These things happen. They are real. Driving, uh, denying them does not make them go away, and the skepticism of modern society has no power to dismiss them. It simply amuses them. Viruses are invisible to the naked eye, but we know they exist because we developed the equipment that enabled us to see them. We may not be able to place a demon under a microscope, but God gave us the means to see them. And then he lists these means. Demons speak in multiple voices and in multiple languages unknown to the person they possess. Demons exhibit superhuman strength. Demons have access to private information that a possessed person could never know. Demons respond to and obey authority in the name of Jesus Christ. 
This experiment has been repeated countless times, and it has been proved beyond doubt that evil, sentient beings called demons do exist. Now, of course, Martin, like most modern evangelical Christians, believed that these demons, like those mentioned in the gospel accounts, are actually fallen angelic beings under the power and leadership of a fallen angel commonly known as Satan or Lucifer. And he's the supposed one and only archenemy of Yahweh. And And the confusion goes on from there. Martin goes on to state, Demons are quite literally Satan's children. Fallen angels or spirits who followed Lucifer in his rebellion against the throne of God, they worship the devil, not God. Today's Christian approach to, Christians approach the subject in various ways, but Martin's view tends to be a fairly common point of view. The idea of there being a single entity called Satan or Lucifer, and that he fell from heaven at some point in the ancient past, usually before the days of Adam and Eve. And that during this fall, he took a bunch of angels down with him, a third of them if you want to intermingle the Revelation account into this line of thought and that they are the ones called demons that are referred to as doing the possessing in the scriptures, as we read today, as well as today's possessions. However, that viewpoint, while it may be very popular today, is not historically what was understood by most ancient Hebrew cultures. It is into that world that we go in our study today, which for many hearers may be a new world and a new civilizational thought. In doing so, I wish to step, knew this was coming, outside of the 66 books of the canon of Scripture that we hold so dear and read all the time. And I seek to examine what was fairly common teaching on the subject by those same Hebrews, many of whom eventually converted to, Christian, to, to uh, belief in Christ and wrote some of our New Testament Scriptures. A lot of the confusion, I think, comes from the use of a few words Words that over the centuries, across different eras of time and in different cultural understandings, have been used in different ways by different writers. As is often done by modern readers, when it comes to word studies, people get into a habit of finding a single definition of a word, and then regardless of the context, they apply that definition everywhere the word is found. I think a root problem is the common use and limited understanding of the term demon. While most use the term to refer to a single set of beings, usually Satan's fallen angels, that is not the most common way the term has been used or understood historically. For instance, in Strong's, probably one of the most common original language dictionaries used, it defines a demon as a demonic being, by extension, a deity, a devil or god. Whereas other dictionaries like Thayer's give us multiple uses such as uh, the divine power, deity, divinity, a spirit, a being inferior to God but superior to man, evil spirits or the messengers and ministers of the devil. And then it goes on to to say a god, a goddess. This this is a, uh, it's from the neutral derivative of the Greek word daemon, and which means a god or goddess, an inferior deity, whether good or bad, or in the New Testament, an evil spirit. When you examine all of the uses of the terminology behind the term we call demon, it finds many uses, yet the common one these days is the belief that it refers to those angels that fell with Satan, though, if you note, Thayer never once relates them to actual angels here. When I took a look 
It did not take long, actually one single click on an internet search, to find such a hard and fast application of this word usage as being a reference to the fallen angels only. The site that I came across stated, angels were created by God before he created the heavens and earth, but one-third of them became demons when they rebelled against God. Demons are angels, and everything that the scripture teaches about the nature of angels, except for holiness, is true of demons. Demons are angels, but unholy ones, ones that have chosen to rebel against God and have retained their defiled sinful nature since that time. A simple definition of demon is, a demon is an unholy, rebellious, thoroughly depraved angel bent on destroying the plans, the works, and the people of God, indeed all people. I am proposing today that the word demon, while it is accused, it may have occasionally been used to refer to fallen angels in times past, or in my preferred term, the fallen watchers, over time it has only had, it has had more common uses. And that by the time we reach the New Testament era, it does not necessarily refer to angelic beings at all. I think a main problem here is the misunderstanding of the ancient Hebrew concept of cosmology and the spiritual realm and the beings within that realm. Things like lacking an understanding of the divine council system. Things like different levels of spiritual creatures, different types of creatures, as well as the, the historic Hebrew thought on the, on the Nephilim in general and more. Today I wish to focus mainly on a continuing look at the influence of the more predominant ancient Nephilim view where, when it relates to the topic of demons, which would have been those couple of centuries uh, during the, the Second Temple period, right, a uh, few centuries right before and during the days when Christ and the apostles were active on the earth. Before going any further, let me state up front that there are two key reasons while I really was hesitant to even discuss this topic today, one we've already kind of hinted to, partially because I'm tired of being labeled a troublemaker, um, <laughs> with all of these weird and off-the-wall doctrines, especially when they tend to bring up and pull in extra-biblical writings more than the canon of Scripture. But really, the uh, when I thought about it, I'm like, well, you know, since I kind of innocently opened this can of worms back in 2014, might as well continue down that path, right? Uh, especially if it helps anybody to understand uh, a little more clarity on topics like this one. So we're jumping in with that. Anyway, the, the, but the second main reason that I really didn't want to discuss this today, the further I got into it, is because really time is not going to allow me to start from the beginning and build this topic up to where we're picking up on today. The foundation for today's topic was laid, at least in part, in my original message on Satan as a Prince back in 2014. And that message, of course, led to numerous messages by Dave on his spiritual warfare series in Ephesians, messages from Jude dealing with angels and all that, and bits and pieces and other messages. So I hated tackling this topic because I know this message will require some working knowledge of those past messages in order to avoid causing tons of questions for newcomers, which I know some of you were not here for that whole series. So. Questions that have most likely been covered in those areas in the past. With that being the case, I feel it best today to not follow our normal practice of having a Q&A at the end. I've removed that slide. Given the width and depth of this subject matter on this topic, I know that it's going to raise many questions. And I have things to be at after church, so I can't stick around and answer all the questions. Anyway, no. 
Questions that I doubt that I will not, I probably won't know a definitive, this is, there's a lot of material, and I probably won't know a satisfactory answer for every question everybody has, um, or a definitive one, because there are debates and scholars over these things. And so, you know, I think it's best if we just kind of, you know, if you have a question, you can see me afterwards, but it's not going to take everybody's time for that. Um, but the position that we're, that I'm presenting today, you will see, is one that was held by many in the historic Hebrew and Near Eastern world, and most clearly was seen during the Second Temple period writings. It does have historical and theological merit. It was known and potentially widely believed even in the early church years, and it can be correlated with the teachings of Scripture's canon. In order to jump in with both feet, though, I do feel it necessary to highlight some of the background positions that are foundational to this topic. Obviously, if you have to go back and listen to other sermons, this is kind of like stating these are what those sermons in the past cover, and so it gives us a place to start. Um, these points have been proven, I've, have been dealt with, and I feel proven adequately in the past messages, so I'm not going to be spending any time proving these points today. So if today's message causes you to have questions related to some of these stated points, a defense of them can be found by referencing the previous messages. <clears throat> Point whether or not numbered, doesn't matter what they order here. The supernatural world presented in the Bible is real and not just metaphoric or symbolic expressions. Angels in different ranks of a spiritual realm, angelic hierarchy does exist, and the word is not simply used to reference human messengers. Uh, Point three, in the Bible, evil spirits or demons do exist and possess and are not just mental or other types of illnesses being described as possession by a medically ignorant culture. The Bible is not a discussion of an eternal battle between Yahweh and a single entity commonly called Satan or Lucifer. It is not a book holding a simple dualistic view of two enemy powers. Understanding the Hebrew concept of the divine council, we know it is a battle between Yahweh and the gods, plural. Satan was a member of God's divine council, and his job in the heavenly court was to be an accuser. Satan wasn't really his name, it was more his job title. The sons of God discussion in Genesis 6 is discussing angelic beings coming down and having sexual relations with women to produce the Nephilim, a hybrid half-breed atrocity that was so bad it led to God flooding the world. There are ancient Hebrew books and writings not part of our 66 books canon of Scripture that were indeed well-known, understood, and influential in the producing of our actual scriptural (laughs) books. These extra-biblical writings are useful at times for filling in the gaps and or better understanding how the ancients viewed and interpreted their Scriptures. Using them does not necessitate thinking that they are on par with Scripture. So, with all of that as a background, let's jump right in. This message, in some senses, picks up where Dave left off in his spiritual warfare series. He had that six-part series. In the last part, he did a fine job defending the Genesis 6 watcher human procreation scenario against other common views, as well as establishing the large stature of the Nephilim that occurred from that union between the angelic and the human. So, how does that relate to our topic of demons and demon possession? The ancient Hebrews believed and wrote about the connection between Nephilim and evil spirits, also referred to as demons. This origin goes all the way back to Genesis. You see, in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, is just a short few verses. But within it, we are told of a long, longer time frame 
over a short amount of verses. So much so that it is easy to just read it and not realize all that was being potentially taking place there. We are told of the sons of God, the heavenly angelic beings, that they saw the women to be attractive. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Two verses later, we are told of the mating process between the two parties and how it produced offspring, which many scholars see the Nephilim as being the children from that union. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And this is immediately followed in verses 5 through 8 with the decision by Yahweh to flood the earth to kill the wickedness. So we have their mating, this mating of different species, followed by Yahweh's decision to destroy the earth because the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So have you ever stopped to wonder just what violence had filled the earth after this mating procedure that was so extremely evil that it justified destroying the earth's population like this? It seems like such a huge leap to make, it, to make in such a short time over those verses. But that is all that we are told in Genesis. Well, to fill in those blanks in the story, sometime throughout the years, the ancient Hebrews in the Second Temple period uh, produced additional writings to explain the common understandings of stories like this. While these writings are dated to Second Temple period, some assume they were written versions of oral histories that had been taught for much longer. Whatever the reason, there were many other scripture-like writings that were written by the Hebrew people that do not appear in our canon of scripture. As has been said numerous times in prior messages, these writings are not necessary, necessarily to be considered part of Scripture canon, but could be used as a sort of commentary on the canon, written by those of that historic time period revealing common beliefs on the biblical subjects at that time. In my prior message given here in June of 2016, a couple months ago, on the topic of biblical context, as well as the one that I dealt with in my lecture, if you were there, in 2015, I showed how, for instance, the book of Enoch influenced the early church and their New Testament writings. Outside of the 66 books later chosen by church councils, there, there were potentially hundreds of other sacred writings produced by the Hebrews, those same Hebrews who revered, revered the Tanakh and who worshipped Yahweh as their Lord, or at least it, they did at certain times in their existence. In other words, we have the 66 books of our Bible. But when so-and-so apostle wrote his book, what other writings were well-known and well-read by him to the point that they potentially had their teaching in his mind as a common backdrop that all of his readers likewise may have read and knew quite well? Did, his, did he reference thoughts and doctrines that his audience knew because of the familiarity with material that we modern readers have no knowledge of currently? Did he fail to go into as much detail on a topic because it was so well-known to the audience of that time? That is what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with writings, many of which were popular enough among the people that they were culturally influential and understood. But the writings themselves were not worthy of canonization. We can, therefore, use these writings to see what the local views were at that time in history, views that would have possibly influenced the writings of Scripture produced during that same time frame. So, 
what do these other ancient Hebrew writings tell us about the Nephilim and demons? What do they reveal as being a common understanding of these things that gets less mentioned in our scriptures? We first turn to one of those that we've referenced quite often in the past, the book of Enoch. Just a quick reminder regarding the background of this book for those who are new to the topic. Most scholars date this book to have been written around the 2nd century B.C., so that's a couple hundred years uh, before Christ had walked on the earth. It was considered very important, seemed fairly popular, and as briefly discussed in my 2015 conference lecture, was obviously very influential upon the New Testament scriptures that we have in our Bible. The book is referred to as pseudepigraphal because it is considered falsely named, meaning scholars do not think it was actually written by Enoch, though there have been some in church history who have held that it was. But most scholars believe it was not. When you understand the ancient Hebrew customs and ways of writing at the time, this practice of ascribing a popular author's name to a writing was not an uncommon practice. So it does not necessarily diminish the importance or truth contained in a writing. Enoch, as we know from Scripture, was taken away from earth to be with God, and that is all we know. This book presumes to contain the rest of his story, which is, being, which is, which is him being taken to heaven to interact with the watchers, those angelic beings who in Genesis 6 had sinned by coming to mate with women and were now under judgment by Yahweh. Enoch is told to tell these watchers, go and say to the watchers of heaven, for whom you have come to intercede. You should intercede for men and not men for you. He's talking to the watchers there. Why and for what cause have you left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and had sex with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men? and taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of earth, and begotten giants as your sons. Though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourself with the blood of women, and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as the children of men, you have lusted after flesh and blood like those who die and perish. But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life, and immortal for all generations of the world. Therefore, I have not appointed wives for you, you are spiritual beings of heaven, and in heaven was your dwelling place. Enoch 15, 2-7. Now, real quick rabbit trail at this point. Hopefully, part of that verse may sound a little familiar to something you're familiar, you're familiar with hearing in the Gospels. There are those out there who take issue with the idea of Genesis 6 referring to angels mating with women, and they base their opposition in part to a faulty understanding of Luke 20, thinking that it teaches that angels are sexless creatures unable to or inadequate to even reproduce. Well, it's obviously not a concept that was understood by the Hebrews because they take no issue with it here in Enoch when they talk about that happening. So considering Enoch was written a couple hundred years before Luke, it should give us a better understanding of what exactly is being said in Luke 20, which tells us, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Just told us a minute ago that angels weren't given to marriage. They were eternal. They don't die. And now it's saying the same thing here. We are going to be equal with angels when we get to that area. So, this, so no, this scripture does not teach that angels lack the ability or body parts to have sex. It simply teaches that in their realm, they do not marry. Marriage is for procreation of a species something set up and required on earth, but is not needed in the heavenly realm. 
All right, end of rabbit trail, back to our topic. So we saw in Enoch that Yahweh tells him to remind the watchers that they have done wrong in their actions of leaving the realm and mating with women and intermingling with their blood. This union becomes, between the spiritual and the human, produced a Nephilim, which are known to be giants. A second witness to this same storyline is the book of Jubilees, sometimes referred to as the little Genesis or the Apocalypse of Moses. The book itself claims to have been written by Moses while on Mount Sinai, as an angel explains to him things that occurred since the beginning. (coughs) Scholars likewise date the writing of this book to around the 2nd century B.C., and it too appears to have been widely accepted and influential, with at least 14 copies of it being found within the writings found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the early chapters, we are told of Methuselah and how he spent time with the angels also. It says, And he testified to the watchers who had sinned with the daughters of men, for these had begun to unite themselves so as to be defiled with the daughters of men, and Enoch testified against them all. And then later in chapter 5, we begin to see the corruption brought upon mankind by this great sin. Because of them, the giants, lawlessness increased on the earth, and all flesh corrupted its way. Men and cattle and beasts and birds and everything that walked on the earth were all corrupted in their ways and their order, orders, and they began to devour each other. Lawlessness increased on the earth, and the imagination and thoughts of all men were continually totally evil. Jubilees 5.2. Enoch likewise tells of the horrors brought, up, horrors brought up on the earth by these giants. The giants consumed all the work and toil of men, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drank the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. Then in chapter 7 of Jubilees, we are told, further told the reasons why Yahweh sent the flood to wipe out everything. For because of these three things came the flood upon the earth, namely, owing to the fornication, wherein the watchers against the law of their ordinances went a-whoring after the daughters of men and took themselves wives of all which they chose, and they made the beginning and they made the beginning of uncleanness, and they begat sons, the Nephidim, and they were all unlike, all unlike, and they devoured one another. And the giant slew the Nephil, and the Nephil slew the Eljo. I'm, I'm Englishizing. All these words are probably have really interesting uh, real meanings. And the Eljo, mankind, and one man, another. And everyone sold himself to work iniquity and to shed much blood, and the earth was filled with iniquity. And after this, they sinned against the beasts and the birds and all that moves and walks on the earth. And much blood was shed on the earth, and every imagination and desire of man imagined vanity, and evil continually. And the Lord destroyed everything from off the face of the earth because of the wickedness of their deeds and because of the blood which they had shed in the midst of the earth. Jubilee 7, 21-25. So we are told that the reasons that the flood of this flood stem from the mating of the watchers with the women which produced the Nephilim, which ultimately brought much blood on the earth through killing of all kinds of creatures, including man. Enoch goes into additional detail naming the parties involved, and detailing more on their, un, their ultimate judgment to come. As we, read through this, as we read through this next segment, bring to mind the verses in Revelation that speak of the lake of fire and the place of the devil and his angels there. Recall also what Jude and Peter say about the angels who were kept in chains until judgment. It says, Then said the Most High, the great and holy one, Uriel, go to the son of Lamech, 
say to him, Go to Noah and tell him, In my name, hide yourself, and reveal to him the end that is approaching, that the whole earth will be destroyed, and a flood is about to come on the whole earth, and will destroy everything on it. And now instruct him as to what he must do to escape, that his offspring may be preserved for all the generations of the world. And again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and cast him into darkness, and split open the desert, which is in Dudio, and cast him in, and fill the hole by covering him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him live there forever, and cover his face, that he may not see the light. And on the day of the great judgment, he shall be hurled into the fire. Enoch 10, 1-6. Azazel is held accountable to a great portion of sin upon the earth. We are told about uh, we are told this about Azazel's sin. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and taught, him, taught them about metals of the earth and the arts of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of anti- anatomy, I guess it's supposed to be, antimony, that's okay. And the beautifying of the eyelids and all words, all kinds of precious stones and all coloring and dyes. And they were great in piety, and there was great impiety. They turned away from God and committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. Look at what Azazel has done, who has taught, who hath taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were made and kept in heaven, which men were striving to learn. So once the initial binding is done, after they've bound him and thrown him into the desert and all that, they, uh, the Lord continues, and heal the earth which the angels have ruined and proclaim the healing of the earth, for I will restore the earth and heal the plague, that not all of the children of men may perish through the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their, have taught their sons. The whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel to him ascribe all sin. So the flood's destruction was in part to destroy the knowledge of the secrets that had been revealed to mankind by the watchers. We will never know, nor probably ever be able to fathom, the situation of what life and sin was like before the flood. We see how bad things are now, how bad they've been in our history, and we can only relate to that. But it appears that things were much worse right prior to the flood. The Lord continues giving instructions to other angels, saying, To Gabriel said the Lord, Proceed against the bastards and the reprobates, and against the children of fornication, and destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers. Cause them to go against one another, that they may destroy each other in battle. Shorten their days. Enoch 10.9 So here we have judgment for, the, for those children of the watchers, the Nephilim, the half-breeds who were destroying living creatures on earth and causing all kinds of sin. Gabriel was to cause them to fight and kill one another to begin to eradicate their presence from the earth. And their fathers, the watchers, had to watch their destruction. This is the same storyline presented also in Jubilees, which says, And against the angels whom he had sent on earth, he had boiling anger, and he gave commandments to root them out of all their dominion. And he commanded us to bind them in the depths of the earth, and look, they are bound in the middle of the earth and are kept separate. And against their sons went out a command from his mouth that they should be killed with the sword and be, and be left under heaven. He sent his sword into their presence that each should kill his neighbor And they began to kill each other until they all fell by the sword and were destroyed from the earth. And their fathers were witnesses of their destruction. And after this, they were bound in the depths of the earth forever until the day of the great condemnation 
when judgment is executed on all those who have corrupted their ways and their works before the Lord. Jubilees 5, 6-10. Part of the judgment against the fallen watchers was to have to watch their offspring die. Those children that they had so longed for and committed such, a gr- such great sin to create. Enoch resumes, speaking to those who started this problem. And the Lord said to Michael, Go bind some Jaza and his team who have associated with women and have defiled themselves in all their uncleanness. When their sons have slain one another and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations under the hills of the earth until the day of the consummation of their judgment and until the eternal judgment is accomplished. Enoch 10, 11-12. Now we pause for a moment here to notice another point. These angels were to be bound for 70 generations. And this is something that a lot of scholars have struggled over the timing of because guess what time frame in history you reach when you calculate out the 70 generations from that time frame? Maybe you guessed it, those first century days when Christ and the apostles came, proclaiming indeed the last days had come upon the people of that generation. One author mentions this problem stating in regards to the book of Enoch, he says, since any book stands to be interpreted in many ways, Enoch posed problems for some theologians. Instead of re-examining their own theology, they sought to dispose of that which, they, which went counter to their beliefs. Some of the visions in Enoch are believed to point to the consummation of the age in conjunction with Christ's second coming, which some believed took place in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. This guy's not a preterist by any means. I don't... Anyway... This being the case, it should not surprise us that Enoch was declared a fake and was rejected by Hilary, Jerome, and Augustine, some of the church fathers. Enoch was subsequently lost to Western Christendom for over a thousand years. Enoch's 70 generations was also a great problem. Many scholars thought it could not be made to stretch beyond the first century. Copies of Enoch soon disappeared. Indeed, for almost 2,000 years, we knew only the reference made of it in the Bible. Without having the book itself, we could not have known it was being quoted in the Bible, sometimes word for word, by Peter and Jude. So, the watchers are bound in chains for 70 generations, and after that time it is said that they will ultimately be judged. In those days, they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and the prison in which they they shall be confined forever. Then Sanjaza shall be burnt up with with the condemned and they will be destroyed, having been bound together with them to the end of all generations. Enoch 10, 13-14. Hopefully you can see how this ultimate end is very reminiscent to the end that we read of, referring to the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself, who are thrown into the lake of fire. That lake, which Matthew tells us about when he states, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, <clears throat> Backing up to the judgment scene as the angels are being bound and have to watch their offspring ultimately die. This is where we get directly into the topic at hand this morning. As mentioned, these Nephilim are mixed species, produced partially from a spiritual entity and partially from a human entity. As such, when they die, it is explained that they are unable to be reconciled, and since they are a mixed breed, they are unable to enter the heavenly realm and are therefore condemned to roam the earth as evil spirits. It says, And now the giants 
who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men, and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. Enoch 15, 8-10. So we are being told that they are condemned to roam the earth as evil spirits. But what are they doing while in this state? Enoch goes on to say, And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. And at the death of the giants, spirits will go out and shall destroy without incurring judgment. What we have here is a whole new created order of spiritual entities who spawn from the physical judgment of another order of created beings. The race of beings that had been bred in rebellion and sin and caused such atrocities upon the earth that Yahweh had to wipe it out clean. Now, the flood had came. That generation of giants has been killed, leaving their spirits to oppress mankind on earth. And we see them causing trouble almost immediately after the flood. Jubilees has Noah speaking and relaying Yahweh's use of the flood by saying, He destroyed everything, and we were left, I and you, my sons, and everything that entered with us into the ark. And behold, I see your works before me, that you do not walk in righteousness. For in the path of destruction you have begun to walk, and you are parting one from another, and are envious one of another. And so it comes that you are not in harmony, my sons, each with his brother. For I see and behold the demons have begun their seductions against you and against your children, and now I fear on your behalf that after my death you will shed the blood of men upon the earth, and that you too will be destroyed from the face of the earth. For whoso sheds man's blood and whoso eats the blood of any flesh shall be destroyed from the earth. Jubilee 7, 26-28. So we see here the echo of the prohibition against the shedding and eating of blood that we find later in the Hebrew Scriptures. The amount of bloodshed, cannibalism, and evil that is described as taking place, it makes us realize that it's not, there's no wonder why he decided to flood the earth to wipe these things out. Sadly, things do not go or do not stay as they should. Jubilees reveals that after the flood and celebration of the covenant to never destroy the earth again, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks was established. Then it tells us, For this reason, it is ordained and written on the heavenly tablets that they should celebrate the Feast of Weeks in in this month once a year to renew the covenant every year. This whole festival was celebrated in heaven from the day of creation until the days of Noah, which were 26 jubilees and five weeks of years. Noah and his sons observed it for seven jubilees and one week of years until the day of Noah's death. From the day of Noah's death, his sons did away with it until the days of Abraham and they ate blood. Jubilee 6, 17-18. So now after the flood, the Nephilim, offspring of the watchers, have been destroyed, and their spirits are destined to remain as evil spirits on earth and are a plague towards mankind. And Noah is concerned that after he is dead and gone, his children, saved from the prior plague, will be seduced by the demons, those evil spirits of the Nephilim. Similar testimony to this is found in another fragment of a writing that is sometimes referred to as the book of Noah. It is only a fragment a few paragraphs long, but it echoes the Jubilee story, telling us, For in those days and at that time, the spirits of the bastards began to attack Noah's children to lead them astray and to make them err, 
to injure them and to strike them with sickness and pain and all kinds of illnesses that kill and destroy human beings. Now again, keep in mind, writings such as Jubilees, Enoch, and all these other types of fragments uh, were the types of materials that were written, read, and known at least during the time period of the centuries preceding the time of Christ and the apostles. So this is part of the backdrop belief system that the New Testament writers were working upon. Many who seek to dismiss the supernatural worldview of Scripture want to point out that demonology appears much more prevalent in the New Testament than it is in the Hebrew Scriptures. First off, that is really not the case, but only seems to be the case due to a misunderstanding and often a mistranslation of the spiritual realm entities in the Hebrew Scriptures, some of which I covered in this past spring's conference lecture. Secondly, if you read the line of thought as it progresses from ancient Hebrew scriptures into the intertestamental and second period temple writings and then into the New Testament, you see a much more gradual increase of discussions on the topic. The assumed leap in activity becomes much less perceivable. So what are we to make of this in the end? The point is that the historic view adds another entity into the ranks of the spiritual realm. One that's uniqueness has all but been lost to modern readers. What we have here is a view that comes from antiquity and was the accepted view at least into the first few hundred years of church history. But just so it is not assumed that this is just some crazy view of an ancient small group of science fiction nuts, let us look at some quotes from the early church fathers on this subject. Now, it's interesting, I thought it was interesting to note, in the volume... I have a volume called A Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, which is where I got these quotes from. Under the topic of demons, the first subsection is titled The Origin and Nature of the Demons. And the scripture reference that is used to open this section is, interestingly enough, Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown, as we read earlier. With this as the opening verse, we know from the start that the editors of this work understood the historic view of the church to be that the origin of demons are related to the Nephilim storyline. Of course, the quotes that follow deal with, the quotes that followed after that heading dealt with all kinds of topics on demons, but as you can see from these quotes under this particular topic, they mention it pretty clearly when they say, the angels transgressed their disappointment and were captivated by love of women and they begat children who are those we called we are called, who are called demons. That's Justin Martyr, circa 160. So we're talking, you know, 160 years in church history there. These angels then, who have fallen from heaven and haunt the air and the earth, they are no longer able to rise to heavenly things. And the souls of the giants, who are the demons, who wander about the world, perform similar actions. That's circa 175. <clears throat> Furthermore, we have instructed, we are instructed by our sacred books, hmm, where you come from, Tertullian? We are um, instructed by our sacred books how from certain angels who followed their own free will, there sprang a more wicked demon brood, condemned of God along with the others of their race. Their great business is the ruin of mankind. Tertullian, circa 197. There are some insincere and vagrant spirits who have been degraded from their heavenly vigor by earthly stains and lusts. Now, they, now that these spirits are ruined themselves, they never cease to ruin others. The poets know that they are that know that these spirits are demons. The philosophers speak of them too. That's circa two hundred. 
From the seed of the fallen angels and women, giants are said to have been born. By them, arts were made known in the earth. When they died, men erected images to them. Yet because they were an evil seed, the Almighty did not approve of their being brought back from death when they had died. For that reason, they wander, and they now subvert many bodied. And it is to them, to, to these whom you pagans presently worship and pray to as gods. So now we're into uh, circa 240. In my opinion, it is certain wicked demons, so to speak, of the race of the titans or giants who have been guilty of impiety towards the, or, the true God and towards angels in heaven. Origin, or into 248. However, those who were born from the relations of angels and women, because they were neither angels nor men, but had a mixed nature, were not admitted into Hades when they died. As I was saying, they contaminated and ab- these contaminated and abandoned spirits wander the whole earth. They console their own rule by destroying others. And now we're getting into the 300s. <clears throat> so here we have multiple teachers from around the mid-2nd century into the early 4th century A.D., and the belief in demons having their origin from the dead giants is a common understanding still in church history. Likewise, the common belief is that they did exist and were not just some figment of the imagination, not some simple mental illness as many try to propose today. So where does that leave us today when it comes to the existence of these demonic entities? <clears throat> when it comes to those within our camps of eschatological thought, we are quick to say that since this being called, commonly called Satan was said to have been judged and cast into the lake of fire at the end of the age, back in the first century, then he and his angels are all gone. Because of that stance, we have multiple thoughts presented on why then do we still, there still appears to be possessions and evil spiritual influences in the world today. In 2010, author and our friend Alan Bondor responds to the question of what about demon, demonic activity today by stating there is no demonic activity today. The mind is a powerful thing. Those who are thought to be demon-possessed are no different than those who are healed by faith healers today. Demon possession today can be very easily explained scientifically. Nobody today has a clue what demon possession was really like before Satan and his demons were thrown into the final location of eternal death. <clears throat> Now, his position sounds logical, but only when based on the presupposition that Satan and demons are actually connected in the way that most normally assume, as we talked about in the beginning. More on that in a second. A second position that at least one well-known preterist takes, also due to the underlying thought in the connection between Satan and the demons, is to place Satan in a less powerful state, while indeed judged and in the lake of fire. Meaning, He is not actually destroyed, but he's still alive and in ways still partially influential while residing in the judgment of the lake of fire. This was a position promoted by Ed Stevens in an article in 2011, where in dealing with the questions of Satan's activity today, he states, I am no longer content to to, to wave my magic all-fulfilled wand over it and give it the quick brush off as I did in the past. I used to take the position based on Romans 16.20 and Revelation 20.10 that Satan and the demons are totally out of the way and are no longer involved with humanity in any way after AD 70. However, in the past, I have seen and experienced things and read the reports of missionaries around the world and heard many people tell their experiences of spiritual forces in the unseen realm, all of which have caused me to rethink all this 
and try to understand it better. I have come to the conclusion that it is certainly possible that Satan and the demons are still able from their location in the lake of fire, which is still in the unseen realm, to tempt and disrupt and throw stumbling blocks in our way. They were conquered at AD 70 in regard to their ability to hold the righteous captive in Hades. They can no longer separate us from God, but I see nothing in Scripture stating that they can no longer tempt us to sin. So there are other views, of course, on these things, but I just wanted to mention a couple that are within our fairly close circle of friends. Well, just as Ed stated that he feels his view to be certainly possible, I present to you a third option that I feel may also be certainly possible. But let me state right now, I I should really just stop the sermon right here. All done. Let's pray. (laughs) Time's up. So let me state up front right here. This is a theory in progress. This is my AT&T position. This is my understanding at this present time. From this point on, consider all that I say in this closing section to just be speculation and thinking out loud to some extent. Since I have not yet personally found any clear-cut material to support or directly contradict it. Truly, there is a huge amount of ancient writings, many of which I have not read. So maybe I have just not found the answer yet, but this theory may hold a solution, at least for now. If somewhat true, this view not only has ancient Hebrew backing and authority, but it keeps the supernatural world intact while leaving Satan, the Satan being, actually destroyed in AD 70 as the biblical timing of the end sets forth. In the book of Jubilees, we are told the name of one of the beings from the class known as Satan's, plural. You understand the divine counsel on it. You understand what that means. Those who are are those who served as accusers in Yahweh's counsel. His name was Mastema, and he is referred to at times as a prince, which we know from previous studies is a common term for divine counsel beings like Michael and Gabriel. At times, we are told Prince Mastema also has his own angels under his command. It is possible that they, too, are likewise similarly in the position of accusers. We're not really told. But they may be those who also held the job title of Satan. In Jubilees chapter 10, after the flood, when the demon spirits were causing trouble for Noah and his sons, Noah prays for God to intervene so as to bind these evil spirits. He says, But bless me and my sons, so that we may increase and multiply and replenish the earth. You know how your watchers, the fathers of these spirits, acted in my day. And as for these spirits which are living, imprison them and hold them fast in the place of condemnation and let them not bring destruction on the sons of your servant, my God. For these are like cancer and are created in order to destroy. Let them not rule over the spirits of the living. For you alone can exercise dominion over, over them and let them not have power over the sons of the righteous from now and forever. Jubilees 10, 4-6. So Yahweh told the angels to go and bind these evil spirits up in a place of condemnation. So these are the spirits after the Nephilim. These are the ones that are going crazy on the earth. Um, this new breed of creature. But before that was actually done, Mastema comes forward and asks the Lord to leave some of them around for him to use to plague mankind. It says the chief of the spirits, Mastema, came and said, Lord Creator, let some of them remain before me. And let them listen to my voice. And do 
all that I shall say to them. For if some of them are not left to me, I shall not be able to execute the power of my will on the sons of men. For these are for corruption and leading astray before my judgment. For great is the wickedness of the sons of men. Jubilees 10.8 So in the end, Yahweh agreed, sending nine-tenths of those evil spirits into the place of condemnation and leaving one-tenth of them under Mastema's command, making them subject from then on to his control and his voice, which to me implies that they were not beforehand. Now, here is the speculative part. Most Second Temple scholars would say that this Mastema character is indeed the one that we later refer to as Satan in the New Testament scriptures. So from now on, I'm going to call him by the name Satan that everybody's common with, even though I don't think it's really his name, but that's what we're going to use for here on out. So Mastema equals Satan, so just keep that in mind. Now, combining all of the storyline together, here's what we end up with. Satan has angels of some sort under his leadership. That's established from some of these other periods. However, later after that, he is given control over one-tenth of the evil spirits that came from the death of the Nephilim. That means that there are two types of entities under his control, angels as well as evil spirits. Now, while it may be possible to make a case that the word demon has been applied to both groups of entities, it is also true that by New Testament times, the evil spirits became the ones more commonly known as demons. Even the church father Origen, who we quoted earlier, makes a differentiation between the two by stating, among angels, some are angels of God, and others are angels of the devil. But among demons, there is no such distinction. He's got two different categories of angels and demons there. So, based on all this evidence from Hebrew writings, and per their understanding, those demons you read about in the Gospels, they ain't no angels. They are a different set of critters altogether. Therefore, Understanding that there are two separate sets of beings under Satan's control, when we are told that Satan and his angels are cast into the lake of fire, that does not necessitate a conclusion that the one-tenth of evil spirits roaming the earth were likewise done away with at the same time. The speculative part is that I have yet to run across any clear-cut evidence that those evil spirits of the giants were also to ultimately be removed from the earth. Maybe that is spoken of somewhere, but I've yet to run across it. So allow me to speculate at this point. Again, erase this part of it if you don't like it. Anyway, when examining Scripture, we get to the lake of fire, and the spiritual beings said to be cast in there were the beast, the false prophet, death, and Hades, the angels who sinned by mating with women were told that they were bound in chains, and Satan with his angels. In all of that, no mention of the ultimate demise of the evil spirits of the Nephilim is mentioned. Remember, before the one-tenth of them were given over to be controlled by Satan, nothing is said about them having a leader, and so it appears that they were free agents with no real leader. That makes the theory I present to be that now that Satan is gone, they have returned again to being free agents, stuck between realms, forever cursed to roam the earth and plague mankind. That would give us the related demonic activity we hear of these days while leaving Satan and his angels out of the picture and uninvolved, as Scripture reveals. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and uh, we thank you so much for the the history that we've been uh, given that surrounds your word. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to discern the good from the bad and and, and help us, Lord, to to just realize that uh, much of this can be speculation. But, Lord, we just pray that you would guide us in the truth, help us to understand 
the ways that we should uh, go and the ways that we should learn. We just pray that you would help us understand your word greater and better. And we thank you so much for the many blessings we have. Amen. Mm-hmm.